Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Um, I tend to start before I think. And then after I start, I think, man, I should say hello to everyone. So when I haven't said hello to you yet, I'll remember and circle back around. Um, but I'm just listening to those words. All my life you have been faithful. Listen, man, I've been walking with the Lord since I'm like three years old. And I've learned a lot about the Lord. And he's made me whole many times. And just those words, man, just brings me to tears. All my life you have been faithful. Just, just thinking about that, those words and what they mean, because for so many years of my life, you know, you're, you're, you're a little child and you're, you're in innocence, and all your mind is filled with is the goodness of God when you're a little boy. You're walking around, pray to Lord, pray to Lord, right? But, but then at some point, the carnal mind comes in, and, and the word of the serpent comes in, and you start becoming aware of yourself. Self-consciousness instead of God-consciousness. And next thing you know, it's shifted from, all my life you have been faithful. Yeah. All of a sudden, the song changed. Yeah. And the song became, the song you hear now is about God demanding for you to be faithful to Him. Amen. So true. Oh, man. Yeah. And then that ruins your life for a while. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then God comes and restores the song. He gives us a new song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sing ye that were barren. Sing ye that thought, I was demanding for you to be faithful to me. Yeah. Right? Sing, for you have realized your eyes have been opened to my faithfulness towards you. God's never been demanding faithfulness from us. He's been trying to tell us of his faithfulness to us. And that's what it means for his praises to inhabit his people. It doesn't mean for us to come together and sing a bunch of songs. That's not what he's talking about. Although we will find ourselves singing songs. But for his praises to inhabit his people. You know what it means? Brother Michael talking about Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the, the interpretation of what it means for his praises to inhabit his people and what that actually looks like. And when you look at what the Apostle Paul is saying there, and if you study it out in the Greek, the Greek scholars say that's the most demonstrative language used in all of the New Testament. We read it like this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like, because we've got to be reverent, you know? True reverence looks like you running up and jumping in Abba's lap and pulling on his beard. I'm just being honest. I mean, Jesus said, unless you become as little children, I promise you, little children ain't walking around thinking God's going to smite them for how they're acting. Little children ain't walking around thinking they got to step into the house of God and be in a certain way in order to make God happy. They just running up into the house, papa, abba. And so it sounds more like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And that's what it means for praise to inhabit his people. And what the Apostle Paul is saying there, when you see that God has blessed you, do you know what it means for God to have blessed us? That word in the Greek, it means that he has spoken well of us with the most eloquent speech that could ever be spoken in the cosmos. That's what it means. 
And the thing he had to say about you is so beautiful, it's so glorious, it's so powerful, the only thing that could accurately express it is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ seated at his right hand. Now, when you see that that's how he has spoken of you, listen, man, I promise you, you will speak well of him. And you will bless him back. Because when you see how well this guy has spoken of you, Man, it will mess you up, like in a good way. It will mess you up on the inside, right? And there, yes, there is something wrong on the inside, but I don't want to be right, right? And so all my life you have been faithful, man. It's like you think you can just not, it's like you think, no, no, I've been touched by God a lot. I know all these things. I know God's faithful. I've been preaching for years how faithful God is. And just that simple little word, man, will break me down like a little baby and make me cry. Because his praises have inhabited his people. (laughs) Uh, I I usually never tell anybody anything about myself. And then a guy told me one day, you know, I tuned you out for 30 minutes because you didn't tell us anything about who you are. And, you know, I was a young guy. And some of you that know me know that when I get up here in front of people, I don't really like being in front of people. And I don't mean I don't want to preach the gospel. I mean that uh, my mind goes blank and I feel like a fish, fish flapping around. And so sometimes I just get up here and I just go. Right. And it's like and they're off. And next thing you know, it's like, man, these people don't know me. <laughs> I didn't even introduce myself. And so the guy said, listen, man, what you said was powerful, but I missed the first 30 minutes because I was so aggravated that you didn't even tell me who you were. And at first, you know, because I still had some carnal thinking back then. At first I was thinking, brother, who cares who I am? I didn't die on the cross for you. Neither was I raised from the dead for you. It's not my testimony that means something to you. It's the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the Lord had to come and lovingly reprove me. Because you know what he said? He said, Greg, um, your testimony is the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you explain your life and who you are to people in light of the Lord Jesus Christ, man, it helps them identify with the Lord Jesus themselves. Right? So, my name's Greg Henry. (laughs) I got a sweet, precious wife named Becky back in Slidell, Louisiana, about 30 miles north of New Orleans. And uh, we uh, started a little fellowship um, down in Slidell, I guess 10 years ago now, called Gospel Revolution Church. And uh, we just came up on the 10-year anniversary, and we have uh, a bunch of precious people there. And, you know, honestly, being around you guys reminds me of being around them. And I see a lot of the same things here that I I see in them. Um, And so it's a great blessing to be here with you guys. Um, It's a great blessing for you to be here, Matt. And what Rick said is so true. You're going to make me cry, too. I mean, seeing your face, man, I hope you know I love you. I mean, you come to that conference like that, and we ride back from South Carolina together, and you come and stay with us in Slidell. Man, I see your face, and I I can't even put words to it yet. I think before I die, I'll be able to put words to it. But you're a great blessing in my life. It's a great blessing to sit with you and talk the gospel and talk the scriptures. I hope you know the, the words that you speak into my life and the things we share together. Man, they are, they are deeply impactful. Deeply impactful. Yeah. 
And Rick and, and Deanne, man, you guys have been caring for my life. And as thankful as I am that you guys have been caring for my life, my wife is even more thankful. Because <laughs> I can be like John the Baptist sometimes, man. Just put me in a tent on the side of the road. I mean, I can eat bugs and I'll be all right. The Lord will be there with me, right? And some people think you get so loud, it is kind of like one crying in the wilderness. <laughs> But man, thank you guys for caring for my life and, and opening up your home to me and, and, and sharing your hearts with me. It's, uh, it's been a great blessing. It's going to be sad to go. Like, I think I'm going to cry in the airport. And probably the only thing that will, will make me feel happy is knowing that I'll see my sweet, precious wife um, and all the people um, at the church. But talking to Jesus, just try talking to Jesus. Just to share a little bit more about myself with you guys, since I think it, it is important. I think I was wrong all those years about who cares. Um, that song means something to me on a number of fronts because my mom was always talking to Jesus. The, the first words out of my mouth were, Mama, and the second words that I spoke were, Pray to Lord. Pray to Lord. And I would just walk around saying, Pray to Lord. Pray the Lord. And I was trying to say praise the Lord. <laughs> the reason why I was saying that is because my sweet mother was always walking around. Praise the Lord. Praising the Lord. You see, the thing about my mom is she had, she, she had one of these, the most radical salvation experiences of anyone I've ever encountered in my life. And some of you that heard about my life think that what I had was a radical story. But you see, my mom, when she was three, four, five, and six years old, she was ritualistically abused by satanic worshipers. And one of them was her grandfather. One of them was the town priest. And one of them was the town doctor. And they abused her in unspeakable ways. And they would put her in a cage and torture her and try to program her to do everything that they said. And one of the things they had for her was to bear babies so they could sacrifice them. I'm one of the babies. And you know what they used to do? They used to put her in a cage and torture her, and then you know what they would tell her? Where's God? Where's God? He's not going to do anything. He doesn't love you. It's up to you to save yourself. That's the first thing they planted in her. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what they said to Jesus? Where's your God now? Save yourself. And then the next thing they did, it's, it's like straight out of a movie. And in fact, for a while, I thought, maybe my mom embellished this a little bit. But you know, when her mother was passing away, and something about my grandmother, she always looked glazed over a bit. She was a delightful woman, but she always looked void of emotion to me. And she was always kind, but I always thought, like, man, there's something like, there's a wall there. And when she got older and was passing away, something got jogged in her brain. And when we would go see her in the hospital, you know what we heard her yelling out of the room? Save the children. Save the baby. Stop hurting them. Yeah. And it was the same thing that happened to my mom. And so after they, they tortured her, they would bring in other kids and animals and torture the animals in front of her and the other children in front of her. And you know what they told her? If you do everything we say, you'll be able to save them. Because God's not coming to save them. We already know because we proved it with you. 
You see how they were trying to get her to trust in her own strength? Not just to save herself, but to save others. Because they wanted her to do everything they said. When I was five or six years old, I used to have this recurring nightmare about my mom. And in the dream, she was like a vampire woman. And she was evil in my dream, coming after me. And I would hide under the bed to get away from her. And I never knew why I had that dream. Because by the time I was that old, my mom had already been radically transformed. But see, for the first year of my life, my mom had not even been saved yet and hadn't been delivered from any of that. And they told me that for the first year of my life, my mother wouldn't even know who she was or where she was or where we were. Me and my older brother, my dad would come home from work and he wouldn't know where the kids were. And my mom wouldn't know who she was or what day it was. And apparently she had hives so badly that you couldn't even see who she was. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks why I had those dreams. Well, my dad told her one day, this is, I can't take it no more. He said, uh, I'm going to work. When I come home, you have three options. I'm either sending you home to your parents, I'm putting you in a psych ward, or I'm just giving you a divorce and I'm leaving with the boys. When I get home, you decide. Well, my mom went off and saw a Baptist preacher. And he asked her if she'd known that her sin had been forgiven. Well, she was a good little Catholic girl who never even heard or thought of any of that. What do you mean Jesus died for my sin? What are you talking about? And so she got saved and filled with the Holy Ghost on the spot. Bam! Delivered from it all. Poof! Whatever your situation is, I promise you it wasn't as bad as hers. And in one moment, poof, my dad came home from work that night and we were sitting at the table and we were clean and she knew who she was and she was clean and she didn't have hives and dinner sitting on the table and she's all, hi, honey, like the Brady Bunch. How was your day today? And my dad's like, he thought it was the Twilight Zone. He thought, this is a joke. And I'll play along. I'll play along. Let's see how long this joke can go for. Oh, it's great. It's great. He sits down. He starts eating dinner. And he says, well, what did, how was your day? What did you do today? He said, my, she said, my day was great. I got saved today. He fell over in his chair backwards. Because she was a good little Catholic girl. And so he just assumed she had been saved this whole time. And so I grew up with a woman, mother and me, that had lived through the worst kind of hell any person could ever live through. And I promise you, my mom is a powerful testimony. I've yet to meet someone who has suffered like my mother in this earth, and I've yet to meet someone who makes more small the suffering she'd been through. And it's not by her own strength, it's that God shrunk it down. She said she had a vision one day where she was huddled up with God and her grandfather, who was one of the people that was torturing her. And she said Jesus was in the middle of the huddle laughing. She didn't know what she thought of that at first. Like, I don't know what's so funny here, Jesus. <laughs> you know, because there she is, she said, hunched over in sorrow, and the grandfather, too, in sorrow and shame. People who are doing that don't feel good about it, guys. I don't care what anybody tells you, the, the works of the flesh is also the fruit of death. And that is the punishment. That's part of the punishment. The people that are doing that, they don't feel good about it. They're not like filled with joy. 
I promise you, hatred and envy and gossiping and murdering and backbiting, they can't satisfy somebody. They can't fill them with peace and love and joy, so they're actually being tortured as they're doing the torturing. And you get a revelation of that, and you start finding compassion and love born in your heart for people that you see that stuff manifesting in. And you come in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? And you come and embrace them in the midst of them hating you. But Jesus said, I'm laughing because... When you see what I do with this, and when you see what comes out of this, when you see what comes out of your seed that was meant for sacrifice. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) And growing up, listen, man, I was a problem for my parents growing up. I mean, there was times where I would sneak out of my house and just be a hellion out in the neighborhood at like 11, 12 years old. And my mom remembers, I remember a specific night where we had snuck out of the house and one of our friends had vandalized the neighbor's house. He ran off and did it. We were just out there, you know, getting high. We're not trying to destroy nothing. Well, he went and destroyed some stuff. So we had to run and sneak back into our homes. Well, we all got back in except for him. He got caught and he squealed. Well, you know, that night, 10 police officers showed up at my parents' door at 2 o'clock in the morning. And the police officers were trying to intimidate me. They were trying to make me afraid. They were trying to, you know, get the truth out of me, and they're going to make me scared because I'm just a little guy. You know what I told those guys? I told them that they can't do anything to me, and I said, if you think I've been drinking and you think I'm high, there's a basketball court right over there on the side. Let's walk over there, the ten of you against me, and I'm going to whoop all of you. My mom's eyes got all big, and she immediately started thinking, I don't know if this is good. And she said, God immediately gave her a vision of demons circling around me, and that that same thing was going to come out of me. That boldness. My mother ended up being the one getting my great-grandfather saved. What do you think that did to his heart? You think he don't know what he did to her? That little girl? And then she's the one coming to him, telling him he's loved by God. Amen. It took a while, but towards the end of his life, he saw mortality manifesting in his body. And he knew he couldn't give himself life. And he could have been sure It's certainly God would never want him. Look at what he'd done. And here comes the one he'd done it to. In the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus. Here comes the one he nailed to the tree, just like the world nailed Jesus to the tree. And she comes telling him about the love of the Father. Poof, he gets saved. (laughs) So now you guys know a whole lot about me. I'm sorry. That's got nothing to do with the message. Uh-oh, brother. Which one is yours and which one is mine? <laughs> it's like picking up the snakes, right? <laughs> With the COVID. <laughs> I'll put my mouth all over your, uh, your water bottle. No, I'm joking. Thank you guys for being with me here today. Um, we're just going to put God on display in our midst. We're just going to talk about the Lord Jesus. 
um, so that we, we can see uh, the bite of the serpent nailed to the pole, yeah. right? Because the serpent's bite is in this earth. You know back in Numbers where the serpents came out and bit the Israelites and they were all dying? And then God came and told Moses, take a bronze serpent and nail that bronze serpent to a pole. And everybody who could see that serpent nailed to the pole will be healed. Yeah. Right? Well, that bite of the serpent didn't come from God. That's why it says it's a serpent. The serpent is the devil. The thing was is the Israelites were believing in the serpent's wisdom for life. They were trusting in their own strength for life. They were despising the bread from heaven. And they wanted to use their ability to make stones bread. And they wanted to feed themselves with bread without the bread of life. And so the serpents came out and were biting them. And they were all dying. And so God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent. Bronze means judgment, condemnation. Take that serpent that's biting the people and killing them. Take that serpent and nail it to the pole. And when they can see that I've condemned the serpent that's biting them with death, they'll be healed from death. I don't know what you might be bitten with right now. I don't know whether the bite's in your heart. I don't know whether the bite's in your body. I don't know whether it's fear. I don't know whether it's anxiety. I don't know whether it's a physical ailment. But I promise you, everything that ails our lives is the fruit of the death that entered the world through the serpent. Everything that ails your life is from the sting of death. And the cross is coming in the fulfillment and in the likeness of Moses nailing the bronze serpent to the pole. The cross is Jesus coming and taking the bite of the serpent that was biting us and nailing it to the pole in our midst. And everybody that can see the death that came into the world through the serpent nailed to the pole and the life running out of that death will be healed from death. Whatever you're going through, whatever weakness you see in your body, whatever fear or anxiety you see in your heart, listen, man, it's not alive. It's dead. It's passing away. It's not a living and moving and growing and breathing thing. It's perishing right now in front of your face. The life has run out of it when the Son of God took it and nailed it to the pole. And if you can see the thing that's tormenting you, if you can see the ailment that's in your body, if you can see it as dead instead of alive, if you can see that you're not one flesh with that sickness, you're not one flesh with that weakness, your life is not intertwined with that fear. Your life is not intertwined with this world. Your life is not braided together with the corruption in this earth. If you can see that, you'll be healed. Right? And don't get into defining the healing. It might be that your heart has to first be healed. As John says, is it third John? Beloved, I pray that your health prospers even as your soul prospers. See, we kind of worked it backwards. The, the, The Bible college I went to, which will remain nameless. We worked it backwards. We got the outside healing first. But we never healed the inside. And what ended up happening is, is we get healed and then like a year later it would come back. And I thought, the Lord, there's something not right about that. Right? And so don't get into the habit of trying to judge yourself by what you see manifesting. Keep your eyes on the death that was nailed to the pole. Jesus said he came to take an ax to the root. The world tries to get you focusing on the symptoms instead of the root. You need to see the root dead. And the root of everything that can torment your life is the death that entered the world through the one man, Adam. And you need to see that death having been condemned by God inside of the body of Jesus Christ. And when you can see that death is dead, it's not alive. It doesn't have life, guys. It does not have eternal life. Mm. 
you'll find healing in your soul. Amen. You'll find fear far removed from you. You'll find the love of God perfected in your heart, right? And then, as, as John says, you'll find your health even prospering. You know, even medical science says that almost everything that ails us comes from stress, yeah. fear, yeah. anxiety. Yeah. Our bodies were never meant to have to deal with the stress and anxiety that comes from seeing death. Amen. We were never created to deal with that. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, now we'll start talking about the message. Rick's like, brother, I don't know if we can have you back, all this. You're much speaking. <laughs> the guy who preached at my church last week, he was so happy because um, he said, well, I don't have to worry about how long I preached because uh, Brother Greg here has filled you guys with great endurance. And so the, 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 <laughs> the people in my church, uh, their, their rear ends have become strong <laughs> and they don't grow tired as they sit in the chair, right? They, they've been exercised. <laughs> they've had their senses exercised by reason of Greg's much speaking. Um, but I want to teach something. As, as you guys already know, I can uh, preach and get fired up. And I tend to get fired up all the time anyway. But I want to teach something that I think is important in all of our lives, to find our whole spirit, souls, and bodies healed. Um, and I think it's one of the most powerful things in the Gospels and in the, uh, the faith. Um, and I'll find it here eventually. I have so many notes, it's uh, crazy. Let's just pray real quick. Yeah. We haven't prayed yet, have we? We'll just pray. Thank you, Father, for this uh, precious time together. Thank you, Father, for the, the forgiveness of sin. Lord, let uh, the forgiveness of sin and what it's all about be, be brought to our remembrance. Let the forgiveness of sin be quickened inside of us. Thank you, Father, for giving us the keys to heaven. Thank you, Father, that heaven and earth has collided in us and that heaven is in this place. I thank you, Father, that heaven will be called down today and that the works of the devil will be destroyed in this place, that everything the enemy has brought against the lives of the people in this place will be destroyed, and that they'll have a revelation that heaven and earth have collided inside of them, and that their heart is the Garden of Eden, and they're in constant communion and fellowship with you in your tree of life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, and that's what I, I want to finish our time together, bringing to everyone's remembrance what the forgiveness of sin actually is. Um, and I say remembrance, but I think it's even more than remembrance. I don't think most people even know what the forgiveness of sin is about. And I think the way we've defined the forgiveness of sin um, is a big stumbling block to us seeing the power of the forgiveness of sin working in our lives. Because listen, the forgiveness of sin is one of the most powerful things in all of the scriptures, right? It's full of power to heal your whole spirit, soul, and body. I mean, it's full of power to heal you from whatever kind of infirmity you have manifesting in your life. We see Jesus walking around in the earth, and from the simple words, your sin is forgiven you, people are healed from all sorts of infirmities. Amen. And so I've asked God, what's going on, bro? I talk to God like that. You realize God's your friend and you talk to him like that. You start calling God, bro. <laughs> What's going on, bro? What's happening there? You know, Paul never said to examine yourself for fruit. <laughs> no. 
I mean, I know that's what we've been, we've got to examine ourselves to see if we, we have the right kind of fruit, right? But Paul never said examine yourself for fruit, the Apostle Paul, but he did say examine yourself to see if you're in the faith or not. And what I found in, in my Christian life, and as, as I move in and out of, of circles of believers, I don't find too many believers that understand what the forgiveness of sin is about, right? And so I didn't know what it was about now that I see. I mean, I've been saved since I was three years old, filled with the Holy Spirit. My mom did a Life in the Spirit seminar and got us all filled with the Holy Ghost when we were three years old. And I hadn't known what the forgiveness of sin was even talking about till like 10 years ago. I'd already been to Bible college, and I didn't know what the forgiveness of sin actually was. Some of you were thinking, how can that be, brother? How can that be? And so I want to look at this, um, and I've talked about this before, and and Brother Rick is talking about it a lot, and I thank God for his boldness to preach the word, the real word, and to abandon the traditions that we've been handed down. In Christianity, you know, the traditions of men that Jesus said make the word of God of none effect. You know where they came from, right? Religion. We've been handed down a whole lot of traditions that have made the word of God of no effect. We've been handed down a whole lot of traditions that's made the word of what the forgiveness of sin is of little petite effect in our lives because of what it's been about. But we've talked a lot and you hear Rick talk about we need a revolution in our definition of words. And so I kind of want to bring that to light today, and I'm thankful he touched on it last week, and you guys can keep dissecting it, and I just feel from God he's going to be able to explain it better than me. So today I just want to hit you upside the face with it, right? And understand that you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will guide you into the truth about what the forgiveness of sin is. And allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you, and, and Rick, as he feels led, you know, you guys will, will hopefully keep talking about it. But we all have the dictionary in our hearts. Even as I just said the word forgiveness, all of you already think you know what that word means. Every single one of you had a meaning come up inside of you. And I hadn't told you what it means yet. But you all know, don't you? In fact, some of you are thinking, why do we need to know what the forgiveness of sin is? Why do we need to know about that? Well, what's happened is, is we've equated our cultural understanding of what, the forgive, of what forgiveness is to what the scriptures are talking about when they say the forgiveness of sin, right? We were taught what forgiveness was by our culture. And then what we did is we read the scriptures, and without even knowing it, we immediately read our cultural definition of forgiveness right into the scripture. And we've just lived if that's the meaning, as if that's what it means. But I don't know if you guys realize, but the scriptures are not written in English. I mean, we have an English translation, but that's not the language it was written in. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, and it was written in Hebrew. And so it might help us if we start looking at that. And because of our cultural understanding about forgiveness, the way the forgiveness of sin has kind of been taught to us is it's left us in the place where we're thinking, this is how we mostly define forgiveness, right? Between humans, what we would say is, Brother Matt, even though he's a saint, maybe he did some harm to me. And now I feel very upset or offended at the harm he's committed against me. And what we say forgiveness is, is if I could find a way to no longer be offended with him. That's how we've said forgiveness. And then we've translated that to God. And the way we've described the forgiveness of sin has been something like, well, God desired proper behavior from us. That's what he wanted more than anything. If we could just be good little boys and girls. But I just want to tell you right off the bat, the thing God wants more than anything is for you to live and not die. That's all he wants. And the reason he wants you to live and not die is so he could spend all his days loving you, 
right? So everything God said isn't about you having good behavior. It's about you living and not dying, right? He's not self-centered. That's not what he's after. So we've taken the forgiveness of sin, and our message has gone something like this. God desires proper behavior from us, but we were bad boys and girls, right? You ever wonder why we spend so much time tormented by what we see in our lives and whether we think we're doing enough for God? Because we've made the whole gospel as if the problem was our behavior and that God was dissatisfied with our behavior. And if we could just fix our behavior, then he'd be happy with us. That's got nothing to do with the gospel. You can't fix your own death. And whatever behavior that's coming out of you that isn't consistent with the life of God, the reason it's coming out of you is because of the sting of death. And so God knows you can't remove the death from your own life. And so he's not busy looking at your behavior. That's why Jesus come and said, I didn't come to clean the outside of the cup. I came to make clean the inside of the cup. But we preach the gospel as if God's looking on the outside of the cup. And he was so unhappy about what he saw on the outside of the cup. Because we disobeyed, didn't we? I mean, he was so upset about it um, that he became very offended with us over our bad behavior. He's so offended over our bad behavior. I don't know if we realize it, man, but one of our problems in our lives and experiencing God is we preached a real puny God. A real insecure, a real fragile God, Amen. right? We, we have not preached God in the likeness that he really is in. Amen. And that's what's hurt us. And really, the, the thing you need more than anything is just to see God accurately Amen. and just to see what's in his heart accurately, and you'll be set free. So the message we've been given from our traditions, it's not Jesus wasn't just saying to those people they could have traditions. We've been handed traditions, brothers and sisters. Every single one of us in here has received traditions from Christianity that's been handed down to us. Every single one of us. And we've just taken it as if that's the gospel truth. It must be true. It makes sense. It makes sense based on our culture. It makes sense. So the message we've been given concerning the forgiveness of sin has centered around the idea of God letting go of his offense. So when we say the forgiveness of sin, we say God's not angry anymore about our bad behavior. And that's what we boiled it down to. Brothers and sisters, this might come as a surprise. I don't think so in this church. God's anger isn't what was killing you. It was never God's anger that was serving you with death. Amen. The scriptures doesn't say the wages of God being angry is death. That's not what it says. It says the wages of sin is death. And sin there is a noun. It's not a verb. And so the wages of you trusting in your own strength to produce life will serve you with death. If it was really about God no longer being offended with us, it would have to properly be called the forgiveness of God's anger. Yeah. But it's not called the forgiveness of God's anger. It's called the forgiveness of sin. Paul come and clearly said the wages of sin is death. And what he's saying is there, that which sin has to pay you with is death. Right. right? Sin doesn't need any help from God to serve you with death. We've got God and sin in cahoots with each other. What we've said is we've sinned, and then God was so angry with us that he served us with death. 
And we got sin and God is like uh, bunk bed buddies. Where God's on the top bunk bed and sin's on the bottom bunk bed. And they're working together to serve us with death. But what Paul comes and says there is that sin, the belief that you can give yourself life through your own strength, that wisdom, that logic, that belief has a reward in it. And the reward it has to give you is death. But then Paul comes and says, the gift of God is eternal life. What he's saying there is the only thing God has in himself to give is eternal life. The gift in God's hand is eternal life. Listen, guys, John comes and says that there's no darkness in God. Neither is there any fear in God. God doesn't have death in himself. It says in Jesus is life. Well, if he don't have death in himself, then how can we say God's the one that gives us the death? You know how we could say it? Because that's what the serpent told us. Just like those Satanists told my mom. This thing that's happening to you now is because of God. Satan didn't just get it right to serve us with death. He got it right to convince us that God was the thief that was stealing from us and killing us and destroying us. So he gets to steal from us and condemn us and accuse us. And then he tells us it's God. And we're like, yes, it's God. It's true. And then we made the whole message of the forgiveness of sin is God's not condemning us anymore. God's not angry with us anymore. He's no longer offended with us anymore. He's no longer accusing us anymore. But God's never been the accuser. Amen. <laughs> He's never been the accuser. And so even the way we describe God letting go of offense is not even consistent with our cultural understanding of forgiveness. It's really not even consistent. Just try and bear with me here for a second. Forgive me. The body of Christ in the earth needs this message. According to the theology that we were taught in the past, God didn't just let go of his offense. He didn't just say, I'll let it go and I'll forgive them. No, no, no. What we've taught because of our theology is we taught that God poured out his anger on Jesus on the cross. And then that's how he forgave us. That's how he'd been delivered from offense. And I'm not sure if we thought about it, but if you need to take your anger out on something or someone, that's not, be, that's not forgiveness. If you've got to take your anger out on someone or something to no longer be offended, you can't call that forgiveness. That's called payment. And if I said that to you, listen, I'll forgive you if I can smite you. You would, there's a demon in that guy. There's a devil in that guy. You, you guys would think we got to pray for this brother. He doesn't understand forgiveness. So with us, we say, you can't exact a pound of flesh. No, no, we just send their offense away from them. But with God, we've described the forgiveness of sin as if he's offended. Guys, I don't know if you realize it, but offense is a sin. If we're dwelling in offense, we would say that we're in sin. And we all do. we got to get rid of that offense, brother. It's tormenting your life. Yeah. And we don't realize it, but the way we've described God is to make him out to be a sinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, guy needs, this guy needs a 12-step program. <laughs> anger management for God. Oh. And now Jesus becomes God's anger management program. <laughs> Where he found a way to no longer be angry because he exacted a pound of flesh. It's heresy. That's heresy. Yes, it is. 
And the serpent got it right. Once Jesus died on the cross and once he was raised from the dead, he couldn't stop that from physically happening. Do you know what he said I can do? I can pervert the meaning behind those things happening. So they don't see the love of the Father. They see an angry, offended God. You know, it's the pagan gods in the world that desire a sacrifice. Jesus comes and says, Lo, I see in the volume of the book that it's written of me, sacrifice and offerings you don't desire from man, but a body you prepared for me. Abraham saw Jesus' day and he rejoiced. And do you know what Abraham saw? The same thing he said when he was going up the mount. God will provide himself the lamb. The pagan gods demand that we offer a sacrifice. God offered himself as the sacrifice. You see the difference? I promise you, a guy who's offended with you over your sin is not coming into the earth as Emmanuel, as God with you, to take your sin and your death into himself. Amen. I promise you. Listen, guys. God's not so fragile that he's in need of being delivered from offense. The word offense in the Greek, do you know what it means? It means to stumble at the truth. You think God can stumble at the truth? I mean, when we're offended, the reason we're offended is because we're stumbling over the truth about something. And you can't actually deliver yourself from offense. All that can happen is you could be taught the truth. The truth can be preached to you, and you'll find the truth will deliver you from offense. If you're walking underneath some heavy burden where you find bitterness and anger in your heart, and you've heard from Christianity, well, if you could just forgive, then you could be healed. Listen, man, come to the place where you tell God, I don't know how to forgive. I don't know how to get rid of this bitterness. I don't know how to get rid of this anger. And ask him how he got it right that when we were nailing him to the cross that he wasn't offended with us. And tell him, I know your father. And if there's something in you where you don't get offended, I know that you have the power to bring it forth in me. Hallelujah. And commit your desire to be set free from offense and bitterness into the hands of the Lord. God don't demand you forgive. He produces it in you. You're the branch. He's the vine. He's the one with the nutrients that produce forgiveness. He's the one. So God's not so fragile that he's in need of being delivered from offense. He's not self-centered. He doesn't filter our behavior through himself. When he sees our disobedience, when he sees our bad behavior, he's not thinking of the harm that's coming to him. He's not filtering it through himself. He's not thinking, look what they're doing to me. Because he's not self-centered. <laughs> when he sees our bad behavior, when he sees our disobedience, the reason he's dissatisfied over what he sees isn't a personal thing where he's personally offended by us. He's dissatisfied because he sees the destruction that's upon our lives. And all he's busy wanting to do is deliver us from the destruction that's upon our lives. And that's really what the forgiveness of sin means. And I'll define it here in a second. The forgiveness of sin is that when God finds you in destruction because of your disobedience, when he finds you in destruction because you've walked out of the way, what he does is he shows up as your friend and he sends away from you the destruction that's come upon your life. God, the friend of sinners, not the condemner of sinners.
1 Corinthians 13 in the Amplified. It says love doesn't keep a record of the wrongs committed against it. Amen. I mean, we read that at all the weddings, don't we? Okay, but then we say God kept a record of the wrongs we committed against him. I just got to point out these contradictions, guys, because we're walking around with contradictions in our heart. And they are serving us with the pain. So we tell each other, you can't keep a record of the wrongs committed against you, brother. But then we come and say, God kept the record of the wrongs. We, we don't realize the God we preach is the God that will be born in people. Amen. Because faith comes by hearing. Amen. And so if I come and teach you a word about God that says God was offended with your transgressions and he kept the record of the wrongs you committed against him, that's the God that will be born in you. And you'll walk around in this earth trying not to hold people's sins against them, but the God you're believing in holds people's sins against them. <laughs> Does this make any sense? Yeah. Absolutely. It's, 1 Corinthians 13 says love is not resentful. <laughs> well, we all know 1 John says God is love, don't we? So I'm sure you guys have already thought of this, but I'm slow. And so it took me a while to put God in there where it said love in 1 Corinthians 13. But eventually I did. And what I said, saw was that if God is love, then what that means is God is not keeping a record of the wrongs committed against him. Oh, Lord. Now the Holy Spirit is climbing up into the high place in my heart and kicking over my idols. Because yeah. Yeah. like Rick says so beautifully, and like Paul talked about, we worship the creation. It doesn't just mean we trust it in our own works. That's a big part of it. But we created God in our image. Mm. <laughs> and so we've created graven images of God, and we've worshiped those. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do, just like, you know, the book of Judges. You know, Gideon was a book of Judge. You know what the Judges actually did when you look at ancient Israel? What they come is they would tell the people, they would issue a decree about the goodness of God towards them to serve them with life. And they would come and point out the gods they were worshiping couldn't give them life, but would give them death. And so Gideon comes as one of the Judges of Israel, and it says he goes up into the high places and he kicked over their idols. And so listen. If I'm kicking over some idols and you find yourself upset with me, I'm okay with that. Because, listen, the God who isn't self-centered has been born in me. And I'm not here so that you can like me. I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I want to be known and I want to know you. And I want to walk with you as we walk with God and walk in love. But your life is more important than you liking me. It just is. And thank God he thought that too. And that's what real love looks like. Right? The love that is preached in the world is, oh, don't ever offend anybody lest you not be in love. Listen, you're loving yourself, not them. (laughs) You're more worried about the uncomfortableness you might feel if you don't tell them the truth. The truth is God is love. And I thank God he loved me enough to come and kick over all my idols. And I promise you, I was not happy with God when he did that. I've been to Bible college already. I knew something. I'm a smart Bible college student. Full of all the beautiful self-righteousness that you can get from your Bible college certificate. I know God. 
I hope you guys understand I'm being funny. There's some great Bible colleges, okay? It wasn't the Bible colleges, it's what was already in my heart. <laughs> That's a tough thing for people to swallow. We always want to blame the preachers we heard. I remember I, when I first started getting these things, that's the first thing I did. That's like the Adam mind, when he blamed God and he blamed Eve. It's that woman you gave me. I remember when I first started seeing these things, it's those preachers. And God was like, brother, the only reason you went along with it is because that's what was already in your heart. What does it say that... Uh, the loving correction of the Lord can be grievous for a time. <laughs> the chastisement there isn't physical punishment. And it isn't about God being angry with you over your behavior. In fact, the author of Hebrews specifically goes on to say that God doesn't correct us like our earthly fathers does. And what that means is, is God bless my dad. Some of you were here. No, my dad is a sweet, lovely, beautiful man. I nailed him to the cross over and over, and he loved me. But I promise you there were some days where Greg's antics frustrated him. And there were times where his correction was with the intent that he could have peace with me. Right? Like he was so agitated by my behavior, his correction was with the intent to correct the behavior so he could feel good about me. God, don't ever correct like that. His correction is not so he could feel good about you. His correction is not so he could be at peace. <sighs> Does this make any sense? I know, it's like I'm talking Chinese, huh? That's because you got the Holy Spirit. You know, we'd all do well sometimes to take a deep breath and say, I have the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit. I mean, God is inside of you, sorting it all out, right? And so we could take a deep breath and like, man, God is in there doing what he do. Don't let my natural eyes confuse me. Just because I don't think I can see it happening. Listen, man, he's in my heart, cultivating my heart. In fact, in Genesis, when it says the Holy Spirit was released into the earth, when God said, let there be light, do you know what it says about the Holy Spirit? It hovered over the face of the deep, the earth. And it's described as a mother hen incubating its eggs to bring forth life. Well, you know, the face of the deep is the dust of the ground. Well, guess what we were made out of? Dust. So guess what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you right now as I'm talking, speaking spirit and life. The Holy Spirit is in your heart, hovering. And you know what it's doing? Incubating life. <laughs> and you ain't got to see it for the Holy Spirit to be doing it. <laughs> well, like I said, last, was it last night? We're always looking for a sign. The sign is that the Son of Man was raised from the dead and the Spirit of that Son of Man that conquered death was poured out on human flesh and dwells inside of you. So if you want to have a sign whether life is in you and whether life is winning and whether you're overcoming and whether you're winning, that's the sign you want to look to, the fact that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And if you don't know whether you have the Holy Spirit, I will lay hands on you at the end of this meeting and we will pray about the Holy Spirit dwelling in you because you are the temple of God. So because we've been taught the forgiveness of sin is about God no longer being offended, what's happened is our focus has become on our behavior. Our behavior, our behavior, our behavior, our behavior. Our whole gospel is about our behavior, our behavior, instead of life and death. doesn't say we were translated from bad behavior to good behavior. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make the dead alive. He didn't come to translate you from bad behavior to good behavior. He came to translate you from death to life. 
And we made it about behavior. That's what the world makes it about. (laughs) Our gospel sounds like the message in the world. And I don't mean this church. I mean in general. So what's happened is we've been been taught a gospel that gets us focused on our behavior as if that's all about what it's all about, where we use the forgiveness of sin to try to believe God's not condemning us anymore for our bad behavior. That's what we've primarily tried to use the message of the forgiveness of sin. But it's a faulty premise because God was never the condemner. If you look at the account of the woman caught in adultery, it's giving us an example of who's the condemner and who's the justifier. Well, the Pharisees come and throw the woman caught in adultery a sinner. And they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they say God says she should be condemned. And what they were really saying is that God condemns this woman for her sin. But there's an interesting dynamic going on there, don't you know? Because John begins his gospel within the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Oh, and by the way, the Word was God. And so now they're telling God that God's the one who condemns sinners. And then God's like, swipes his finger on the ground in the middle of the temple. Didn't the finger of God write the law? You know what, Jesus? You presume to tell me what the law says? I am God. I wrote the law. And the law never said that God is the condemner. The law said that the thief steals, kills, and destroys. And if you trust in the thief's system, his system will uncover your nakedness and leave you filled with fear and shame, and condemnation will be worked in your heart. And so we got a faulty premise. God's, we got God as the condemner, and the forgiveness of sin is how we're going to believe God's not condemning us anymore. But he was never condemning us. Who was the one condemning the woman caught in adultery? Jesus is God. Which one in that picture was condemning the woman? The Pharisees. Didn't Jesus say to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil? <laughs> so there they are condemning her, accusing her, uncovering her nakedness. They threw her down there naked. Just like Adam, was un- his nakedness was uncovered. And they tell Jesus, God condemns sinners. And Jesus is like, I'm a God with you. I'm about to show you how God gets down. Yeah. You want to see how God gets down in the midst of sinners? He justifies the ungodly. That's right. You know what makes God just? That he justifies the ungodly. Amen. That's right. <laughs> it takes a righteous guy to justify the ungodly. And so God was never the one condemning you, brothers and sisters. If you read Romans, it's like a doctor. It's like, we all know this. Let's say we have an ailment in our body. If we have a wrong diagnosis, we'll have the wrong medication. And then the medication we'll take will never heal the ailment. Well, we've had a wrong diagnosis. It was never God condemning us. And so we've had the wrong prescription. Romans 8 says that it was sin that was condemning us with death. It was the serpent system that was condemning us with death. You know what Romans 8 goes on to say? That God condemned the death that was condemning us through Christ. When he raised Christ from the dead, free from death. Mm. It's true that God doesn't condemn us. That's a true statement. He was never condemning us, though. 
And so that's not what the forgiveness of sin is all about. And what's happened is because we've seen it that way, what's happened is we've become barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And then we all wonder, what's wrong? You notice how immediately we think, what's wrong with us? Right? If you're like me, you can see I'm an emphatic guy. Oh, I'm a loser. <laughs> Thank God he delivered me. Right? But I'm just being, I'm just being honest with you guys. I'm just going to be transparent. Right? These are the things I've gone through in my heart. Right? I was, unbar- I was barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. I knew that Christ Jesus came. Yeah. I would tell you he died for my sin, but I had no idea what that meant. Right. And so I was barren and unfruitful yeah. in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so Jesus says the traditions of man make the word of God of none effect. First Peter would come and say, he says, if anyone is barren or unfruitful yeah. in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, watch what he says right after that. They've forgotten that they were purged from their sin. Yeah. Did he say they're not faithful enough? Did he say they don't pray enough? Did he say they don't tithe enough? Did he say they don't serve enough? He didn't say any of that, did he? In fact, he said all the fruit of God's life will come pouring out of a person as they become mindful of what it means that their sin was purged. So because we, we didn't just, it's not that we forgot. We didn't even know what it is. And the devil loves that. There's nothing more miserable than Christian people that have heard the gospel and believed on the Lord Jesus, and yet they don't even know what he's done. Yeah. And then they're walking around in the earth. How can you be the salt and light of the earth if you don't even know what the gospel is? Amen. <laughs> you know how you're the salt of the earth? It's not by what you do. You know, salt is a preservative, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It keeps things from decay. Yeah. Okay, well, the way you're the salt of the earth is by telling the world what God did to preserve us from death, decay. Yeah. God has salted the earth with his life, and all you do is declare what he's done to reconcile the world back unto himself. That's how you salt the earth. You speak of what God's done to preserve our lives. You speak of what God's done to preserve the earth from death. Thank you, Jesus. Mm -mm -mm. And so, guys, as Christians... When I started to understand this, I saw things broken off my life that had been there forever. Things that I wanted to be gone. I mean, we've all had the Lord take it from me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only heathen. I say that jokingly. We're not heathens. We're the children of God. The sons and daughters of God. Lord, take it from me. Right? And when I started understanding what the, the forgiveness of sin actually was, I found I was no longer barren, unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. But I found my heart and my life being circumcised from the fruit of death that's in the earth. I found fear and anxiety far removed from me. Because the forgiveness of sin actually takes an axe to the root of what produces fear and anxiety. It actually takes an axe to the root to what produces disease, to what produces sickness. It takes an axe to the root of all of it. Right? And so many of the things that we've struggled with in our lives is because we haven't understood the true meaning of forgiveness. And the true meaning of forgiveness has been lost in the church. We've forgotten that God has brought forth our life from an incorruptible seed. I said your life has been brought forth from an incorruptible seed. 
How many of you are busy looking at your life right now and thinking that it's incorruptible? Or how many of you are thinking of the decay you see in your life? I promise you the world comes knocking to your door every day like an evangelist. Forget about the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door. The world comes knocking on your door every day, pointing at whatever decay is going around in your neighborhood or in your country or in your world or even in your own body. And it points at that decay. And you know what it wants to convince you? That you're one body with that decay. You're one body with that corruption. You're one flesh with that weakness. You're intertwined and braided together with the corruption and the tribulation you see in the world. Why do you think we get so upset when we see things going wrong in the world? Why do you think it bothers us so much? Because we're living in this world, but we don't realize our life is not of this world. And so we see our lives as braided together and intertwined with the weakness and the corruption and the death we see and the tribulation we see in the world around us. And we've forgotten that we're strangers in a strange land. We've forgotten the land from where we're citizens of. How many of you guys are worried about the tax code in Germany? None of you? How many of you know what it even is? Wow. You know why? Because you're not a citizen there. You don't see your life as braided together with Germany. You don't see yourself as being one body with Germany. Well, guys, do we have a heavenly citizenship or not? Are our lives held in a heavenly realm or not? Well, what kind of a life do they have in that realm? Is it a life that can be corrupted? No. Is it a life that's subject to tribulation? No. Is it a life that's subject to weakness? No. no. In fact, we see the kind of life it is in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God, who overcame death and found the death that manifested in his body on the cross completely removed and eradicated. The weakness that came alive in his body when he was nailed to the cross was removed from him as far as the east is from the west, never to return again. And the government that we're citizens of is upon the shoulders of his indestructible life. And the gospel is supposed to persuade us that we're one body with God and his indestructible life through the Lord Jesus. That our lives are not intertwined with the dust of this ground. Our lives are no longer but dust. They're made of a heavenly substance, an incorruptible substance. This world can't take me out. Amen. The world already took its best shot to take you out in the man Jesus. And what did he do? He came out of the grave. He conquered the death that's all the time trying to tell you that it can steal from you. The kind of life you have can't be stolen from. The kind of life you have can't be added to. The kind of life you have can't be taken from. The life you have is so much that even should it come across death, it will swallow death to the uttermost, and it will leave it to where there's no more death anymore. God has baptized you in the light of his life. What that means is, is he come and baptized you in light, and through his light manifesting in you, he separated the darkness from you. Thank you, Jesus. When do you want me to stop, man? Acts 13, 38 says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. If you read chapter 13 in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul says that Jesus was raised up from corruption. 
And because Jesus was raised up from corruption, notice corruption. It says Jesus was raised up from corruption. And because Jesus was raised up from corruption, the forgiveness of sin is preached to us. Paul equates the forgiveness of sin to being raised up from corruption, divorced from corruption, separated completely from corruption, unbraided from corruption. Notice he doesn't say anything about God being angry there. Notice he doesn't say anything about God being angry. He talks about through this man Jesus is preached the forgiveness of sin. He says, through this man, Jesus is preached what God has done to divorce your life from the corruption in the world. Through this man, Jesus is preached to you what God has done to uh, deliver you from being one body with death. Through this man, Jesus is preached to you the forgiveness of sin. And so that's really what I want to come today to you to declare to you. I want to declare to you that God is filled with compassion towards you. Because it isn't just that he did this because he thought it'd be cool and let's see what happens. He did it because he saw us suffering at the hands of death. He saw us suffering at the hands of sin. He looked in our eyes and he saw us weeping. He looked in our eyes and he saw our eyes welling up with tears. And he saw the tears and the grief that we felt was on account that we were made one flesh in one body with the death and the sin and the corruption and the tribulation in this earth. He said we were all the time saw that we were beholding our lives in the world. And so he was filled with compassion. And I'm here to declare to you that his eyes are filled with mercy towards you. If your eyes tear up over something in your life, God is not indifferent to you. And he hears your cries. And I'm here to tell you that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. He sees the infirmity in your flesh and his hand is stretched forth towards you to heal your life from the infirmity in your flesh. Jesus is God's hand stretched forth towards you, resting on your head to heal your life, to heal your body from the weakness that's in this world and the weakness that's tried to destroy your life. He comes as the great physician. He comes as the great physician to perform a delicate surgery, the kind of surgery where he removes the tumor of death from your body. And there's no more death anymore. And he makes you one flesh with him. In his indestructible life. Thank you, Lord. God's the only one who can forgive sin. Amen. They knew that. Why do you think they got so upset about Jesus forgiving sin? Yeah. God's the only one who can forgive sin. God's the only one that can forgive sin. And some of you think, wait a second, don't we have the authority? I mean, some of us come from that, but you've got to take your authority, brother. No, rather, I'm going to talk about God's authority. I'm not trying to take any authority. Jesus wasn't walking around in the earth trying to take authority. He was walking around in the earth in authority. There's a big difference. It's like the sons of Sceva. Paul I know, Jesus I know, and I know they know God, but who are you? Jesus wasn't trying to prove anything. He was walking in the power of sonship. It was an innocent thing. He didn't look on the power of God and say, let me mimic it. He walked around in the earth knowing that in him was a life that overcomes death. He walked around in the earth knowing that in him is a life that brings forth order out of the midst of chaos. He walked around in the earth knowing that in him was a life that separates darkness. And he viewed the world through those eyes. Right? 
So he's the only one that can remove the weakness that's come upon our minds and our bodies from sin. He's the only one that can do it. But guess what Jesus said? I'm going to give you the keys to heaven. I'm going to give you the keys to heaven. And as he gives us the keys to heaven, you know what the keys to heaven are? That there's a glorified man seated at the right hand of God. And so heaven's been opened up to us. And we're not just supposed to see Jesus seated in the heavenlies. That's where we're supposed to see ourselves. And we see that the works of the devil, which was to serve us with death, because that's what it tried to serve Jesus with, isn't it? We see the works of the devil have been destroyed in the body of Jesus' resurrection. And we're calling down heaven into earth. And do you know how we call down heaven into earth? By declaring that God has divorced us from death and he's made us one body with himself in his indestructible life through the Lord Jesus. That's how you call down heaven from earth. That's how you bind the strong man. You bind the strong man by declaring a life that's overcome death in the flesh. And as you declare a life that's overcome sin and death in the flesh, what happens is, is you're calling down heaven upon people. Heaven and earth have collided inside of you guys. We're citizens of a heavenly country. The life that's there is indestructible. Let our minds be filled with the word of an indestructible life instead of the word of the death we see around us. Let us see that we're dead to death. Let us see that the blood ran out of the body of weakness, the body of death, the body that was subject to the tribulation in this world. Let us see that the blood ran out of the old man. And let us see there's a new man that's been raised up, a man that is not just dust. He's of a heavenly substance. His life is the very life of God. And he has come out of the grave free from sin and death and manifested heaven and earth. feel happy. Good preaching. You, you see what I, I mean, what, what, uh, most, I'm assuming most of us are Americans. I don't care what political side you line up on, but I think we can all agree that the political environment is like stressed out, right? Like, you know, I remember, I mean, I'm a young guy, but I remember you used to like hear about politics like one year maybe before an election. Now you hear it like every day and it's constant. Right? And our, our minds are filled with the conversation that they're having. Well, there's a conversation that's also going on in heaven. There's a politics going on in heaven. There's a government going on in heaven. And what conversation are we participating in? Are we participating in the conversation in this world, which was filled with death and weakness and sorrow and tribulation? Or are we participating in the conversation in heaven? Because there's a huddle in heaven in the Godhead. And we've been invited into the huddle. And they're talking about something. And I promise you, they're not talking about the weakness they see in this earth as if they're anxious about it. And the reason why isn't because they're indifferent to our suffering. It's not that they're indifferent. It's that when they look at the weakness they see in the world, they see the weakness in light of a life that overcomes weakness. And so they're filled with the certainty of life manifesting. They're filled with the certainty that life is overcoming, that life is growing, that death is dead, that the corrupt systems that torment us are dying. They're passing away. Whatever you see in your life that you don't like, don't look at it as if it's living. Look at it as if it's dying. It's breathing its last breath. The Holy Spirit is digging a grave right now for whatever it is that ails your life. 
And it's already dead, but he's digging the grave so he can bury it in the grave in front of your face so you can see how dead it is. And that's why the Lord Jesus, who is the Spirit made flesh, came and took our death, the death that was stinging us with fear, the death that was filling our bodies with weakness. He took it and brought it into the grave. He did that in front of us so we could see that it's really dead. Death is really dead. It's really dead. The early church fathers said that the apostles sneered at death. They winked at it. You know, like the Fonz. <sighs> death, death's coming knocking on my door. <sighs> it, they actually say, when you read some of the early church fathers' writings, they marveled at the apostles. They said they ran towards death. You see... They had a whole different kind of thinking. Listen, guys, I don't tell you about the apostles so you could think, oh, they're so great and I'm so bad. The apostles are not super Christians. No. They're not better than you. No. They were taught a different message than we've been taught, guys. That's the problem. That's the difference. It's not the apostles in their faithfulness. It's the faith they were believing in is the faith of God. Yeah. And within that faith is an incorruptible life that will take you captive and make you a crazy man. Yeah. <laughs> crazy girl, crazy gal, crazy man. And I, I feel like the Holy Spirit is like Popeye, like I said last night. I've had all I can stand, I can't stand no more. The time where we're going to allow our people to suffer under wrong doctrine is over. And we're going to make straight what's gotten crooked in the body of Christ concerning the faith. And the faith is going to be preached. I don't know these things because I'm real smart. I, I, didn't, I didn't read these things in a book. This isn't because of my much studying. If you, the only good thing I can say I've done in my life is I kept purposing to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's it. That's all I've done. And all my bouts of frustration and anger and upsetness, which were many, and all my bouts of even shaking my fist at God, in cussing God, all I've done is I've kept listening to the faith. And I kept asking God, show me Jesus in the scriptures. I stopped begging God to do something for me. I stopped begging God to change my life. I started asking God to show me Jesus. I saw the apostle Paul said something very powerful. He said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And I saw that the apostle Paul saw something in Jesus that said, and he said, this is the thing to know. And he forsook knowing everything else for the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And he said the reason that he did it was so that he could be intimate with the power of the resurrection. He counted everything in this world as dung. He counted everything that he had as loss. And he saw what the world would call loss is gain. He laid down the life he could have from the world. He looked at the life that was in the world and he said, that's not my life. And he saw the life that was manifested in Christ Jesus. And he said, Father, that's the life I've been longing for all along. He saw the world could never give him the life he longed for. And he started praying to God, show me Jesus. Yeah. Just, it's a simple thing. Father, I believe that within Jesus is contained all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. I actually believe that. Amen. And Father, I desire to see Jesus. 
I desire to see Jesus in me. I desire to see Jesus in the scriptures. I desire to see the world that I live in that's surrounded with the shadow of death. I desire to see the world I live in through the eyes of Jesus' indestructible life. I don't want to behold the death and decay I see in the world and that I might see in my life as if it's alive and I'm one with it. I want to behold the life that overcomes death in the flesh. Hallelujah. So when we think of forgiveness of sin, we want to think of it as the forgiveness of the wages of sin. When we think of the forgiveness of sin, we want to see that sin and death are synonymous. Sin and death are synonymous. So when you think of the forgiveness of sin, and this is where it's going to get like, what? Does not compute, does not compute because of our cultural understanding. When you think of the forgiveness of sin, think of it as the forgiveness of the wages of sin. That's how you think of it as the forgiveness of death. That will start challenging your cultural understanding of what the word forgiveness means. And you'll start thinking, well, how does that fit? And I'm about to tell you. Think of the forgiveness of death. The Apostle Paul said the wages of sin is death. And so when you think of the forgiveness of sin, think of the forgiveness of tribulation. Think of the forgiveness of decay. Think of the forgiveness of corruption. Think of the forgiveness of death in everything that is the fruit of death. And now I want to read to you the definition of the word forgiveness in the Greek. Amen. I'm going to read to you, and Brother Rick brought this out. It was a beautiful thing. I got so happy in here. Yeah. I was watching you guys' service. I watch you guys' service. I don't know if you guys realize that you got a great service here. There's a great word coming out of this place. If I lived in Myrtle Beach, I wouldn't start a church. I'd come to this church. I'm not joking. I would come here, and I would be happy to come here, and I'd be happy to sit under the teaching of that guy. And I'd be happy to sit under the teaching of the word that comes out of all you guys coming around this guy, right? Because all you guys come together and edify one another, and a word is produced. And it's a powerful word that is being grown and incubated in this place by the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful thing. And so here's the word forgiveness. Aphesis, and aphi is the root. That's the Greek word, and it means freedom. That's the first meaning, freedom. Release from bondage or imprisonment. Release from bondage or imprisonment. Do we think that God's the one that had us in bondage or in prison? No. Well, then how could we be released from God's anger? Yeah. I mean, I think we all know, what does Hebrews 2 say? That we were all our days in bondage through the fear of death. And who is it that held us in bondage through the fear of death? It says the devil. That wily serpent. Like wily coyote. He's about as dumb as wily coyote, right? (laughs) He's about as dumb as wily coyote. Forgiveness. The forgiveness of sin is God delivering people from the fear that's in the world through death. That's what the forgiveness of sin is. It's God delivering you from fear. That's what he's doing. The reason he wants to deliver you from fear is he likes you. He really likes you. It's like Mikey. When I was a little boy, they had this commercial, give it to Mikey, he'll eat it. (laughs) Mikey likes it. We used to run around, Mikey likes it. God likes you. He really likes you. He wants to come and sup with you in your house. But if you're filled with fear, guess what? Every time he seeks you out, you're going to run from him. 
And so the forgiveness of sin is God showing up and delivering you from fear. And the way he delivers you from fear is by divorcing you from the death that's in the world. He shows up and the death that's tormenting you, the death that's stinging you with anxiety and stress, the death that's uncovering your nakedness, that's producing weakness in your body, the death that's got you crying all the time, he shows up and he divorces your life from it. He shows up and he sends it away from you as far as the east is from the west. And when you see that he's done that, listen, man, that sends fear away from you. That's forgiveness. I'm going to keep saying it because all of you, forgiveness, our cultural understanding destroys what forgiveness is. Forgiveness are pardon of sins. Letting them go as if they've never been committed. And then it says what that means. Remission of the penalty. To remove the penalty. What's the penalty of sin? It's not God's anger. That's how we've been taught, though. The penalty of sin is death. And so God shows up as the friend of those who are dying. And I promise you, people who are dying, the best kind of friend they can have is a guy who's got a life that can't die. That's the kind of friend we all need. And the word sinner, guys, we've taught it as if it's our identity. The word sinner is not an identity thing. The word sinner just means not partaking in eternal life. It means not to partake in life. Doesn't mean we were ugly to God and then we became pretty to God. It's not that we were ugly and God's like, well, if I can dress him up real good, then I want to be married to him. Imagine I tell my wife, listen, I think there's some potential. Imagine if in my proposal, I come to my wife and tell her, well, I think we got something to work with here. If we can just clean you up a bit. I think we can be married. You guys hear how ridiculous that sounds, isn't it? And every single one of you know, listen, not only is she running for the door, I might get a smack across the face before she runs for the door. But that's how we've described God. And we've lived as if that makes sense. (laughs) Aphesus, the word for forgiveness in the Greek, it comes from the root word, That means to send away, to send something away, to bid going away or depart of a husband divorcing his wife. What? Mm -hmm. So in the Hebrew language, if the husband decided he wanted to write a writ of divorce for his wife because he didn't want to be married anymore, do you know what he would come home and say? I forgive you. You can go. It had nothing to do with being angry. It just had to do with him declaring to her that he was divorcing her. Yeah. Our one, our union. <laughs> Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. <laughs> Brother, I hope you know I'm winking at you like, like a joke. I'll lay hands on you after. <laughs> And so what he, marriage is to become one flesh, is to become joined together, a union. And so the word the Hebrew guy would use if he was going to dissolve the union to where there was no more a union, the word he used was forgive. And what he meant was our union has been dissolved. 
we're no longer one. Right? And you're free to go. It's of any, this is again the forgiveness, the root word of forgiveness, of any kind of separation of one thing from another by which the union or fellowship of the two is destroyed. I'm going to say that again. Of any kind of separation of one thing from another by which the union or fellowship of the two is destroyed. So we had union and fellowship with sin and death. We were intimate with sin and death. We were intimate with the wisdom of the serpent, and that joined us as one body with death. The forgiveness of sin is God coming and destroying the union and the fellowship that we had with death. Now, you think he did that because he was angry? You see all those definitions I read in the Greek of the, the word forgive and the root word. Do you see how none of those made any mention of being delivered from God's anger? No. Or even mentioned being delivered from anger at all? No. It speaks of God justifying us. Yes, it speaks of God coming standing next to us as our advocate in the face of the accusation. Just like he did with the woman caught in the act of adultery. And he comes and stands with us in the face of the accuser, uncovering our nakedness. And do you know what the accuser was accusing us of? Not being the children of God. That's the accusation. The accusation was never that we walked out of the way. The serpent always said, we're not the children of God. And the thing that he pointed to as his evidence, because he's hasatan in Hebrew, which means prosecuting attorney. He's making a case that we're not the children of God. And he came and accused us of not being the children of God. And his evidence was the body of death we were clothed in. His evidence was that we were one flesh with death. Because after all, in God, there's no death. There's only light and life. So if there's no death in God, and we're joined one with death, then the serpent is accusing us, you can't be your children. Look at their death. God shows up as our advocate to defend us against the accusation. And you know how he justifies us from the accusation that we're not the children of God? He divorces us from the death we were joined to. He forgives us of our sin. He sends away from us the death we were joined to in the man Adam. And now we stand there free from death. And so the serpent's accusation has been cast down. Man, God, God will keep talking to you. He won't stop. God will even talk to you if you don't love him. If you let him, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Cain, God came and talked to Cain. Cain didn't want him to talk to him. You know, real quick about Cain. You know, we all read the account of Cain, and God says to Cain, Listen, man, if your offering isn't the same as Abel's, won't you also be acceptable? Acceptable means to be exalted. And then he says, listen, our, he, our King James language says, there's sin crouching down at your door. Go and master it. That's a horrible translation. You know what that word sin in the Hebrew is there? It's a noun. It's not a verb. It's not talking about behavior. It's not saying, behold, bad behavior is crouching down at your door. If you can master it, then you'll be acceptable. That's not what it's saying. When you look at that word sin in the Hebrew, it's a four-hoofed animal, i.e. a lamb. When you look at it in the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, it says a sin offering is at the door. 
And so when Cain brought his own good works to God, the fruit he cultivated by tilling the ground, the dust body he was clothed in, and he brought that fruit to God, you can never be exalted in the eyes of God by your own works. And so God knew Cain couldn't be exalted by his own works. And he knew that Cain would be destroyed if Cain tried to be exalted by his own works. So God came to Cain and he brought a lamb with him. And he said to Cain, listen, man, it's not that I accept Abel and I don't accept you. I can't accept your offering because you can't have life by your own works. And if you try to have life by your own works, you're going to die. And I can never be happy with that because I want you to be exalted to my right hand. And the only way you can be exalted is by you being clothed in the life of my lamb. Listen, man, I brought my lamb with me. It's crouching outside the door. Go and take the lamb and offer it. Will you not also be accepted? It's amazing what you'll find in the scriptures when you start seeing the Lord Jesus. The forgiveness of sin. It's a good example is like a surgeon who performs a, a surgery to remove a tumor from a patient. And so if we looked at the proper way of using forgiveness in the scriptures, we could say the doctor forgave the patient of the tumor. He removed the tumor from the body of the patient. Yeah. He sent the tumor away. Yeah. He dissolved their union. How much more time I got? Somebody tell me, you guys don't know me. <laughs> I was a marathon runner. <laughs> I have great endurance. You guys just raise a hand and say, uh, what is it? What are they, what's the word you say when you have... Uncle. <laughs> Uncle. <laughs> In a marriage, we say, the two shall become one flesh. Don't we? Yeah. Now, when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was as if a marriage occurred. And what he did was, if you want to know what we inherited from Adam, listen, man, I'm sorry if I upset a bunch of you guys. Or anybody watching online. You didn't inherit a sin nature. No. In fact, that's nowhere in the scriptures. No. What you inherited from Adam was death. That's right. The Apostle Paul didn't say, by one man, Adam, every man has a sin nature. No. What he said was, by one man, Adam, death reigned over all. That's right. What he said was, the carnal mind is killing us. That's right. The carnal mind is a mind that's been fathered by death. That's right. And so... In a marriage, the two shall become one flesh. When Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as the representative of the human race, he joined mankind together as one flesh with death. Amen. And we became unionized or we unioned with the body of death. That's why the Apostle Paul come and said, who shall save me from this body of death? Who shall save me from this body that's dying? Because every time I behold this body that's dying, every time I behold this death in my body, it torments me, and it works condemnation in me, and it tells me that God is far from me, and it tells me that I'm a lamb without a shepherd, and that I'm being led away to the slaughter. Who's going to save me from this dying body? And then he says, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ and the law of the spirit of life, because he has come and condemned the death that was condemning me inside of the body of Jesus Christ, and he's divorced me from my union to the old man that was dying and now I'm free to be married to the new man that's been raised from the dead and sat at the right hand of God. Yeah. 
He says, nothing in this world can ever convince me that I'm a lamb without a shepherd because I see the good shepherd is the Father and I see the Father drew near to me and condemned death. Hallelujah! So we became one flesh with sin, which means our lives were braided together with death. Again, when you read the scriptures, for those of you that like to read the scriptures, start seeing sin and death synonymously. When you read sin, remember, the wages of sin is death. So when you see sin, insert death into that. You'll start getting a much clearer picture of what the problem is and what's going on, right? And so in Adam, we were joined together, braided together like a marriage with death and all the tribulation and corruption that comes from death. That's what we were joined to. And so listen, God was there and he could never say amen to our union to death. He could never bless our union to death. He could never agree that it was good because he wanted to be one flesh with us. And so God hid his face from our union to death. God never hid his face from us, guys. He hid his face from our union to death because he could never bless our union to something that was killing us, right? But we had the carnal mind, and so when we saw God's face hidden, we thought he was hiding his face from us. But his face was hidden like a father who's hid his face from his daughter bringing home a husband that's a serial killer. Those of you that have a daughter, if they come home with a serial killer, you think your face is going to shine upon their union? You think you might turn your face? I mean, in the scriptures, that's what it means for your face to shine upon something. It means you give it your blessing. So God never hid his face from us, but he could never bless our union to death. He never created us to die, so he could never bless it with eternal life. And that's when he put the cherubims to mark the tree of life. And he marked the tree of life to keep us from being condemned to a union to death for eternity. That's a picture of God hiding his face. That's what it means. He hid his face. But he didn't hide his face from Adam. In fact, he loved Adam. That's why he did that. He said, I'd rather die than let Adam live eternally in death. So he guarded the tree of life. And he guarded the tree of life till he could divorce mankind from death. Right? That's what he did. So we're going to keep this blocked off to everybody. So if you want to know what happened to you in Adam, this is what happened to you in Adam. This is what happened to all people in Adam. This is what the sin of Adam did to all people. All of us lost access to the tree of life. That's what we lost. That's why the cherubims are there blocking the tree of life. In Adam, we lost access to the tree of life. That's what happened. It's real clear in the scriptures, guys. We've been taught a bunch of nonsense. I promise you, if you think you've got a sin nature, that's the power into you never getting free because you're going to think you're inherently evil. Amen. Amen. You know, something interesting about the cherubims that mark the tree of life. You know, they were etched on the veil in the temple that blocked the holiest place. Those same cherubims that guarded the tree of life are etched on the veil in the temple that God's presence was hid behind. Yeah. You know, something else that's interesting, when you look at ancient Hebrew diagrams, they draw the tree of life as being in the holiest place, in there behind the veil with God. You know what else they think about the holiest place? They, they, they say that that's analogous for the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. And so God could never bless our union to death 
So he blocks it off. The veil wasn't there because God was angry with us. The veil was there because God didn't want us coming in there to eat from the tree of life while we were joined to death because then eternal life would have been granted to death. (laughs) And he could never do that. He could never do that. Now fast forward to Jesus on the cross. He's the last Adam. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. And he breathes his last breath and he gives up the ghost. And the scripture says the moment he breathed his last breath, the veil was torn from top to bottom. And so when Jesus said it is finished, what was Jesus talking about? Listen, guys, I hate to burst our bubble. The work is finished. But when Jesus said it is finished, he hadn't even raised from the dead yet. And he hadn't even ascended to the right hand of God yet. And he even told Mary, don't grab a hold of me yet because I haven't yet ascended to my father. And so what is Jesus saying when he says it is finished? Do you know what he's saying when he says it is finished? He's saying, Father, I have entered into the old man, the man that was one flesh with death. That death that is in this body. I have now breathed the last breath of the man that was joined to corruptible death. And in breathing that last breath, man has died unto their union to death in me. Mankind is now free to be married to another. Even us, through the body you're going to raise up in me when you bring me out of the grave. That's why the veil was torn. Remember, that's where the cherubims were that were keeping us from the tree of life. God had to dissolve our union to death before we could be free to eat from the tree of life. He had to forgive our sin, which means he had to divorce us from the body of death we were joined to by the sin of one man, Adam. And the moment he divorced us from our union to death, sent our death away from us, sent the corruption that we were one with away from us, now we were free to come and eat from the tree of life. By the sin of one man, Adam, all people lost access to the tree of life. But by the righteousness of one man, Jesus, all people's access to the tree of life has been restored. Nobody is standing in the sin of Adam. I don't know if you realize it, but if you think we're standing in the sin of Adam, when we were in the sin of Adam, nobody could eat from the tree of life. And so if we, we come and teach we're in the sin of Adam, well, that means nobody can have life. Everyone is standing in the grace of Christ. Everyone is standing in the work of Christ to divorce us from the sin of Adam. And we have access to the tree of life that his work gives us through faith in Jesus. Because you ain't coming to God unless you believe in Jesus. Because the fear won't be removed from your heart if you don't believe on Jesus. Right? So the tree of life will be there and you can be free to come in there and eat. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says the gates are open. There's the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and the gates are open. So what's the difference? The just will come to God because they'll have faith in their heart. And when they see God, they'll see that God's a rewarder of those who come to him, not a punisher. And they come in running to Abba to eat from the tree of life. But those who are the unjust that don't have faith in their heart, they do not think that God's a rewarder of those who come to him. They think God's the punisher. And you even see that in Revelation, that when the plagues come, because of the fruit of the serpent, they curse God, it says. They blame God. I'm going to have to listen to this message over and over and over again. At weddings, we say, till death do us part. Well, in the death of Jesus, we were parted. (laughs) And we were parted from our union to death. 
<laughs> we were parted from our union to death. Right? Hebrews 10 that kept the way to the, the veil talks about the veil that kept the way to the holiest place. Do you know what it says? It says that the veil was torn through the body of Jesus' death. Amen. It says through his flesh. Yeah. It was torn. The veil that was keeping us from the tree of life. Right? So when Jesus cried, it is finished, he was saying the sin of the world is forgiven them. I'm the lamb that Woo! came into the earth to take away the death that was reigning over all people. And I did take away the death that was reigning over all people. And through his, the body of his death, what happened was is the veil was torn. Like Hebrew says, through the, his flesh. And we're almost done, I promise. You guys are so great. Thank you so much. In the scriptures, when Jesus says, because remember, Jesus walked around, your sin is forgiven. When Jesus says your sin is forgiven, he isn't saying God is no longer angry with you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying to the people is the destruction that's come upon your life because of the sin in the world. The destruction, that which is destroying your life because of the sin in the world is sent away from you by the hand of God. That's what he's saying to them. And the people knew God was the only one who could forgive sin. And so Jesus comes and says, man, your sin is forgiven you. And what the people heard in that day, they knew the destruction that was manifesting in their lives and had come upon their body was the fruit of sin. And when Jesus said, your sin is forgiven you, they knew that meant that God is the one that had forgiven their sin. And so they, when they heard Jesus say that, they knew that the hand of God was upon their life and that the hand of God was sending away the destruction that had come upon them. That's what they heard. That's what they heard. That's why people were healed. When Jesus says, your sin is forgiven you, he's saying your life is no longer intertwined with the weakness you see in your flesh and the weakness you see in the world. Your life is no longer braided together with it. It's been destroyed. That's what you want to hear when you think of the forgiveness of sin. Whatever destruction, whatever ailment, whatever corruption, whatever decay, whatever weakness you see, whether it be in your life, whether it be in your body, whether it be in the world around you, you want to hear Jesus saying to you, your sin is forgiven. Sin is forgiven. And what that means is not your bad behavior. That's not what he's saying. The destruction that has come upon your life at the hands of the sin of Adam has been sent away from you by the hand of God. That's what he's saying to you. That's what he wants you to hear. Does that make any sense? And, and see, he, 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 the forgiveness of sin, there's another word, remission of sin. And then I'm going to pray for everybody. The remission of sin, you notice I use the forgiveness of sin and the remission of sin. Remission of sin means to be healed from unbelief. Because if you notice in John 16, Jesus defines sin as unbelief. And not just unbelief, it's unbelief in God's goodness towards you. It's unbelief in the righteousness of God towards you to heal your life. And Jesus heals us from that. 
right? And so when you look at the conviction of sin, the conviction of sin does not mean the condemnation of sin. What it means is the reproving of sin. And the way that Jesus reproved us of sin is we were in unbelief about God's goodness towards us. And then Jesus shows up as the hand of God. And as the hand of God, he rests his hand on us and he says the destruction that has come upon your life, the decay that's destroying your life is sent away from you by the hand of God. And all of a sudden that healed you from unbelief in God's goodness towards you because you saw God there with you sending away from you that which was destroying you. <laughs> Hallelujah. I always get more than anyone. That's why I keep going. I'm like an ever-ready bunny. Right? I keep going and going and going and going. The people in our church, man, they love me, but they, you know, their rear ends are getting arrested today. <laughs> and so... If there's anyone in here that has weakness in their body, if there's anybody watching online that has weakness in their body or disease in their body or infirmity in their bodies, or if there's anyone in here that has anxiety in their heart or fear in their heart or pain in their heart, listen, I want to pray for you guys today. And you don't have to get up. You don't have to raise your hand. If you prefer afterwards for me to lay my physical hands on you, that's okay. But I want to declare to you today that God himself is here. And his hand is the hand that you need to be laid on you. And the preaching of the gospel is the laying on of hands. Not my physical hands. It's the preaching of God's hand being laid upon you. And so if you're one of those people that has something going on like that in your life, listen, I just want to declare to you that God's hand is upon your life. I want to declare to you that God has divorced you from whatever weakness, from whatever infirmity you see in your body and you see in the world. I want to declare to you that you are not one flesh with the, this world. You are not one flesh with the systems of this world. You are not one flesh with the governments of this world. You are not one flesh with the tribulation or the sickness or the disease that's in this world. You are not one flesh with any of those things. In the name of Jesus, those things be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Father, we believe. Thank you for helping us in our unbelief. In the name of Jesus, let weakness be far removed from everyone in this place. In the name of Jesus, let fear be far removed from everyone in this place. In the name of Jesus, let their bodies be made whole. Let their souls be made whole. In the name of Jesus, let your spirit come upon them and remove everything that isn't consistent with your life as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, Father, that there be no more rem remnant. In the name of Jesus, let strength come alive inside of everyone. In the name of Jesus, let everything that's gotten crooked be made straight by the power of Jesus' indestructible life. Thank you, Father, that your hand is upon us. Thank you, Father, that there's strength in your hand. Thank you, Father, that your hand, like a surgeon, removes that which isn't born from life from us. Thank you, Father, that we could see your hand on us, that we could see your hand removing everything that's trying to destroy our lives. Thank you, Father, that we could see you with us, only being good to us, only upholding our lives, only warring against that which tries to war against us. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.
Man, your sin is forgiven. You are not one flesh with sin. You are one flesh with the resurrected Jesus. Your life is hid in him. When you want to know if you've been healed, don't go away looking at yourself. Go away and behold yourself in the body of Jesus Christ and let it serve to you as a testimony that whatever destruction has tried to come upon your life, it's been completely removed. As Paul said, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again, so have you been raised up from the dead. So have you been raised up from a corruptible life, never to be able to die again. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for your patience.